of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. If you're using one of the Black Bibles provided, you'll find today's text on page 415. 415, you'll find the text, I will say kind of our primary text this morning because we're actually going to look at several, but what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to ask you to leave your Bible open to Jeremiah 31. I will refer to that a lot, but if there's other, as there are other passages that we're going to refer to, which there will be a number, you'll see those on the screen, so feel free to leave your Bible there open to, uh, again, page 415 if you're using the Black Bibles, Jeremiah 31. I would like for us to just read again. I know we read it a few moments ago in our call to worship, but I would like for us to read Jeremiah's prophecy that tells of the new covenant. You remember that we've been doing a a series on covenants, and now we come to the last covenant called the new covenant. I I honestly will have to tell you that I think this is my favorite one, and uh, I trust that you will go away with that same excitement after we have heard the promises of the Lord made to the people of Israel. So Jeremiah 31, I'm going to read for us verses 31 through 34, and then we will ask for God's help. So follow along as I read aloud. This is the Word of God. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sins will I remember no more. Father, humble us before your word this morning as we consider it. May we be helped by it. May we be encouraged by it. May we be convicted by it. Most of all, Lord, may we come away this morning from these texts of Scripture with a renewed sense of your goodness, of your mercy, of your long-suffering, and of your intent to do good for wayward people. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. Once upon a time in a land far, far away. There lived a king, a king rich beyond your wildest imaginations, powerful, but a benevolent king nonetheless. This king had a son who grew up enjoying the lavish life that is associated with the palace and all of the accoutrements that come with royalty. But the prince was rebellious. He chafed under his father's rule. And so when he was of age, he ran away in a fit of insolence. The king was heartbroken. His dear son, whom he loved, had run away. He had left the safety and security of the palace. 
Some months after the prince ran away, by a strange twist of circumstances, the king became acquainted with a poor orphan boy that lived not far from the palace. The king, being a kind-hearted, benevolent king as he was, brought him into the palace. He lavished love upon him. He, He cared for him. And over time, he began to love him as his own son. He soon adopted him. He gave this this new adopted son a place of honor in the kingdom. This new son enjoyed riches, authority. He, He even had his own entourage that escorted him through the streets of the kingdom. In short, he became himself a prince. When he came of age, he was actually given a province within the kingdom that he was to govern. But you might be surprised by something. The king did not forget the son who ran away. No, actually, never far from his mind was this this son who was rebellious, who who had left because, you see, the king still loved him dearly. It was always on his mind. In fact, the king sent out multiple search parties over and over again to scour the kingdom and even even neighboring kingdoms with careful instructions that when they found his son to plead with him to please come home where he is still loved and would be doted upon. He loved his adopted son dearly. He lavished immeasurable love on him, but he never spoke of his oldest son as being replaced. He never had the attitude that the the second son could somehow replace the son who had run away. You see, he loved them both. And in fact, from a legal point of view, the oldest son was still entitled to the throne should he choose to return. Many evenings, the king would, would ascend the castle wall He would look off in the distance with a tear in his eye, hoping to see his son return with one of the search parties that he had sent out. Years went by. And finally, the son did return. Having seen the error of his ways, he, he came home on his own accord to be reunited with the father. And the kingdom celebrated. A a festive ceremony was conducted to to reinstate this prince who was gone and had now returned. And besides the king, there were few happier in the kingdom than the adopted son. The son who who had come in under the king's care, even in the absence of the oldest son, because now he had a brother a brother who was once again in right relationship with the king. They each had a role in the kingdom, in the, in the royal family. Their role was distinct, it was different, but both were special in the plan of the king. If you're thinking about the passage that we just read and the topic of the new covenant, perhaps you perceived in that story an analogy. 
This fictitious story reflects the story of Israel and the church. We look this morning at the last in our covenant series. This, what has been called and is referred to by many of the prophets as a new covenant. And from it we learn that God delights to bring the wayward to himself. God delights to bring the wayward to himself. So let's consider this new covenant. Again, I'm going to look mostly at the passage in Jeremiah. You'll see other passages that are uh, reflected here on the screen as we get to those. But you have your Bible open to Jeremiah 31. What does this covenant look like? What is the, the nature of the new covenant? Well, it's very clear as, you, as we read through this passage together, verses 31 through 34 in particular, that this is a special relationship. It is a covenant. Remember we talked all the way back during our introduction. It is the, it is the inauguration of a special relationship between, between two parties. And of course, when we're talking about God's covenants, these are between Israel and God. And so over and over again, it is reiterated, especially in verse 31, that this is a relationship, a new type of relationship that existed between Yahweh, Jehovah, and Israel. We see this passage. By the way, if you want to just jot down a couple um, passages for study on your own. So we find the New Covenant here in Jeremiah 31. We also find it in Ezekiel 36 through 37. Really, it, it spans those two chapters. We find it sprinkled throughout the book of Isaiah, um, particularly chapters 56 and 59. So if you want to do some study uh, on your own of the New Covenant and those other passages. But Ezekiel 37, I make a covenant of peace with them. In the context, it is Israel. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply, multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Hosea the prophet says, In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So this relationship between God and Israel is, is a new thing that God is doing in the prophets, looking forward to it, promising that he will do something in the future. But of course, in that observation, it is, it is with a group of people that he has covenanted before, is it not? Right? I mean, I mean God has had a covenant with these people. In fact, the covenants lead up to... We started with the Noahic covenant, right? And then we quickly moved to the Abrahamic covenant, from which flows the three other covenants that we've since considered. So, so as the prophet tells of this new covenant, he also makes it clear that it is very different than the first covenant. Did you notice that in, verse, in chapter 31? Um, verse... Uh, Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Right? This, is, this is different than the Mosaic covenant. This is a different relationship, God is saying, that I will have with my people than I previously had. It is not 
the, the covenant that is tied to the law, to Moses' covenant, it is something very different. It is an everlasting covenant. Consider chapter 32. Go over there with me. Chapter 32 and verse 40 of Jeremiah. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from doing them good. You remember back when we first started the covenant series, you talked about the different types of covenants. And some of them were, were unilateral. They were unconditional covenants. And others of them were imbibed with conditions. Much like a, a contract of today. If you do this, I will do this. You do this, and I will do this. But there were a certain class of covenants that were, that were unilateral. God promises to do something for people who were undeserving. Well, in, in Jeremiah 32, in the, in, the, in the text that we just read, it, it's clear that this is an everlasting covenant. And furthermore, it is irrevocable. Notice back to chapter 31 where we were just a moment ago in verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, what is he doing? He's saying, God, who set the world in order, you count on the tides, you count on the the stars, you count on the the sun rising just as surely as you count on those occurrences in nature, so too you can count on this. Verse 36, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. And then the passage, uh, the verse that we read, uh, well, we'll read verse 38 here in just a moment. This is an irrevocable covenant. If you take all of chapter 31 and 32 of Jeremiah, you see the phrase, thus says the Lord. The Lord says nine times. This word is sure. It can be counted on. This is an irrevocable covenant. Ezekiel says it this way in Ezekiel 36. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. Yet I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations whereby they went. So they they sinned. They profaned the name of God, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, I do not do this for your sake. What God is doing in the new covenant, what God is promising in the new covenant is not because you deserve it, Israel. It is not conditional. It is not that if you obey me, then I will do this because I'm not doing it for your sake. I'm doing it For my own glory, O house of Israel, back to Ezekiel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned amongst the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. God is making an irrevocable promise to do something in the future 
for his people Israel that will bring glory to his name. This is not a promise that is conditioned on their obedience. It is because of the mercy and the goodness of God. It is the word of the Lord will not change. Now, we started off by making the point that this was a promise between God and Israel. Yet we recognize, if we look at the entirety of the Old Testament canon, that there are tremendous implications for Gentile peoples. And as we see hints of the New Covenant all throughout the prophets, often they will hint at this reality that there are profound implications. I mean, this goes all the way back to Genesis 12, when the nations are mentioned as part of the promise that God would perform in the days to come. We see it in Genesis 22. Ultimately, it will be realized in the final kingdom, Isaiah 56. The sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servant. The foreigner, who is that? That's Gentiles. That's us. Anyone, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds my name fast, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, this, this is profound because Gentiles were not allowed anywhere except the outer court. And so when, when God promises that Gentiles will worship in His house of worship, something tremendous is being promised. And so there is a promise as they look forward that the Lord gathers the outcasts of Israel, He says. I will gather to Him others besides those who are gathered to Him. The new covenant has tremendous implications for Gentiles, for those who who were not part of the family originally, but who will have an overflow of blessings. What are these blessings? Well, we've seen kind of what the covenant is about. We want to examine in depth the provision of these blessings. The first, there's really kind of two categories. There's physical blessings and there's spiritual blessings. So let's, let's look quickly in Jeremiah 31 at the physical blessings that are promised. So again, chapter 31, let's go back, if you would please, to verse 8 of, uh, of chapter 31. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together, a great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplication, and I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles far off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of the one stronger than he. Now keep in mind that this is in the context of the scattering of Israel as a consequence for their rebellion from him. And so even in the midst of Jeremiah's prophecy of destruction, of scattering, of chastisement, 
God says, I will bring them back together. I will, I will regather this nation one day. And so the, the first physical blessing is regathering to the land that had been promised to them. Now, if you're thinking about our whole study, you realize that when we consider the Deuteronomic covenant, right, the land covenant, that the land was promised to them for an eternal inheritance. Yet the enjoyment of that land was conditioned upon their obedience. Well, because Israel disobeyed, because they rebelled against God, God scattered them. They, they are not enjoying the promised land even today. One tiny little sliver of it, one small portion of God's people, but, but in large part, on the whole, God's people are not enjoying the blessings of the promised land. Well, God says, I'm going to gather them back together. God says through His prophet, I'm going to, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to punish you, you will be scattered, but you will one day again be regathered. And not only that, again, chapter 31 and verse 12, the land will be productive. There will be economic blessing. Verse 12, therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flocks and the herd, their soul shall be like a well-watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at it all. So there will be great prosperity given upon the regathering of the people, which will produce what? Verse 13, joy. Then shall the virgin rejoice and dance, and the young young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness says the Lord. So God will provide for them, richly provide for them. Tremendous prosperity will characterize this regathering of Israel. It will be a joyous time. Go down with me to verse 38, where we see that God promises to rebuild the infrastructure, rebuild the cities. Again, chapter 31, verse 38, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall extend again straight forward over the hill of Gareb. Then it shall turn towards Goath. The whole valley of dead bodies and of ashes in the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. That you will be rejoined together as a people. You will be given the land back. The cities will be rebuilt. There will be a great revival. Remember, we talked about the Davidic covenant. We said that was the golden age of Israel. But it pales in comparison to the promises of what will be the ultimate golden age of Israel in days to come. Now, this is all important. And I want us to frame it in the context, not only of the covenant series that we've just been through, but looking forward to the series that we're getting ready to start in the Minor Prophets. Because the minor prophets are full of, of woes and destruction and punishment. And in every one of them, we see hints of this same promise. 
even in the midst, even in the context of God's punishment of his people, we see hints that one day God will do something special. He will regather his people. He will give them prosperity. He will give them the richness of the land. But the promises don't stop with physical promises. They go on to something that is even far greater. There are spiritual blessings associated with this promise as well. So in Jeremiah 31, in verse 33, we read this, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer will the law be merely written on stone tablets. It will now be written in the very heart of his people. They will, there will be a wholesale revival, a returning to obedience to God. Consider chapter 32 and verse 39. I know we're doing a lot of, of looking at various passages, but this, these are all important as they weave together to form a tapestry. Chapter 32, verse 39, Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts, so that they will not depart from me. Ezekiel the prophet says it this way in chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and will give you judgments to do them. Now there's a lot in that Ezekiel passage. That, that God is going to do a work of regeneration within His people. There are some from the house of Israel who have, who have come to Christ in saving faith and have been regenerated and become part of the church. But by and large, as a whole, the nation of Israel at present has rejected their Messiah. They do not follow after Christ. But there will be a wide-sweeping revival where, where the children of Israel as a nation will turn to God, will recognize their, their Messiah whom they rejected, and will be regenerated, made new in their hearts, not just keeping the law and the external, but that the, the, the law of God, the fear of God, will be written in their very hearts. And verse 34 links that to forgiveness. So, verse 34, the last part of the verse says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This revival characterized by regeneration, is linked to forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 links it as well. By one offering is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after He has said before and then He hearkens back to the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds and will write them. Then He adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
Now where there is remission of sin, there is no longer an offering for sin. We've already referred to Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 36. I'll not take the time to read it again. God is going to put a new heart within His people. They will be revived. They will come to Him. And so the provisions of this covenant are not just physical, that they'll be regathered to the land, that they will enjoy uh, the prosperity of the land, but that they will become His people. Ezekiel reminds us in chapter 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So, so his people will be regenerated. They will be forgiven of their sins and they will have the spirit dwelling within them. All of this is indicative of a special relationship that God will have with his people. There's a key phrase that we see throughout the passages of the New Covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. God is that king whose son Israel has rebelled. But God promises through his prophets that the day is coming that we will once again be in right relationship, God says. That his people Israel will be reunited, that their hearts will be made new, that there will be a wholesale revival, that by the throngs Jewish people will come to God. And they will once again be reunited with the one who they have rejected. Now, understanding the new covenant is tremendously important as you study the prophets. And so it's timely for us to be kind of sewing up this, um, this series on the covenants as we look forward to a, a series that will start next week on the minor prophets. And I'm going to attempt, attempt to preach one minor prophet a week. We'll see, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, but, but we want to just kind of take a quick overview in the, um, of the minor prophets. And as we do, what we're going to see again and again and again, the prophets prophesy that God will do a work of correction. But even as that happens, uh, God has also promised God has also promised that He will do a work one day for His people as He reunites them with Himself. Even amidst God's chastisement of Israel, He promises them a bright future. Now, this all brings us to a question. We're excited for the people Israel. We look at these beautiful promises that are, that are given to the people of Israel, and as we think about them, we think about regeneration. We think about forgiveness. We think about indwelling of the Spirit. We go, hmm, that sounds familiar. That sounds like some, some other promises that I've heard of. And so that brings us to this kind of sticky theological question about the relationship between this new covenant and the church, God's people today. Now, this is a difficult question because there's practically nothing said in the Old Testament about the church. In fact, the New Testament writers often refer to God's work of the church as what? A mystery. They don't mean by mystery that you can't figure it out. What they mean by mystery is it's something that has been hidden. That's the idea of the word mystery. And so, so this, this church, this work that God is doing among the Gentiles to bring a people to himself, 
was heretofore unknown, heretofore unrevealed. And so, having been unknown in ages past, we don't know a lot from the Old Testament about how the church relates to the New Covenant. So what are the possibilities? Well, some theologians have suggested that there's no relationship between the church and the New Covenant, that they're two completely different matters, there's no overlap in between. Well, you go to the New Testament and you look at Christ and the Last Supper initiating, inaugurating this meal at which he says the new covenant is now ratified. You remember again our examination of covenants and how they worked. And remember that we said that often a covenant was ratified by a sacrifice, remember this, and a meal together. So, so Christ participates in this meal, which actually shows the symbols of the sacrifice that he is about to make. And what he said, what's he say? He holds up the cup and he says, this is the what? The new covenant in my blood. So Christ is ratifying. He, he, is, he is participating in the ceremony that finalizes this new covenant. Now that does not mean necessarily that the, the covenant now has been implemented because we often will see a covenant ratified and then centuries go by before it is fulfilled. But what we see is Christ doing this work in, with, with whom? With the 12 apostles, the, the founders of the church. So there seems to be some sort of a relationship there. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 2 Corinthians 3, Paul viewed himself as a minister of the new covenant. And then, of course, we can't overlook the obvious fact, right? Many of the blessings are the same. Regeneration, the indwelling of the Spirit, forgiveness of sin. So then the question was, is, has the new covenant then been inaugurated? We know it has been sealed. We know it has been ratified because Christ says as much. But has it been inaugurated? Well, we would expect a great deal of New Testament language to revolve around the implementation of the new covenant if that were the case. But we see, again, I know that's an argument from silence, but we see the New Testament remarkably still on that very point. The writers would seem, it would seem to me that the writers would be using the Old Testament language of the new covenant everywhere, pointing out the reality that this is the fulfillment of the new covenant. So it seems to me that there is some relationship between the church and the new covenant. So some have suggested that perhaps there are two new covenants. That perhaps there is the new covenant that was promised to Israel, and now there's a new new covenant that is given to the church. Well, the problem is there's, there's not a lot of scriptural support for that. I believe it's, it's, I mean, I've read the case and I've heard the case for it, but I don't find it altogether convincing. Now, you may, and that's fine if you do, um, but I don't find it altogether convincing. In fact, Christ says, this is the new covenant in my blood, this do in remembrance of me, to a group of Hebrews who would have only known one new covenant. 
And he doesn't say, oh, no, no, not, not that one that you're thinking about. This is a different the new covenant. So the fact that there, the idea that there are two new covenants, I don't find entirely convincing. But the challenge comes in where does the church fit into that covenant inauguration? Well, some believe, in fact, I would say many believe, um, that the church replaces Israel. That the church becomes a, a spiritual Israel. That, that the new covenant is being completely fulfilled in the church. Well, let me tell you my concern about that. I have two, a twofold concern. First of all, well, I'll get to those concerns in a minute. Let me, let me tell you one other possibility. It's already up here on the screen, so you're already ahead of me. Um, but, but, and, then, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the implications of it. That is the idea that the covenant has been ratified through Christ, but that the covenant has not been inaugurated yet. That is to say, um, through Christ... Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant and is also, what, the head of the church. Through Christ, the church, we believers participate in many of the same blessings as the new covenant. In, in some would say it this way, new covenant-like blessings. But, but that this covenant is still to be fulfilled to literal Israel in the future. So I would say it this way, just because the New Testament, just because New Testament believers enjoy blessings that are listed in the New Covenant does not preclude God's keeping those promises to Israel. In other words, do we enjoy many of the New Covenant blessings? Absolutely. Regeneration, forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, blessings abound. Some of the same blessings which are promised to Israel in a day to come. Does that mean we have replaced Israel? And I do not conclude that that's the case. So let me just kind of delve into that just for a minute. When you look at all of these new covenant passages, the house of Israel, national Israel, the seed of Abraham is in view in every one of those passages. Ezekiel 36 uses the phrase house of Israel three times, verse 22, verse 32, verse 37. This is the, the house of Israel. This is who is in view in the context of these new covenant promises. Furthermore, secondly, God promised to do this even in spite of, in fact, he says, because of their profaning of his name among the Gentiles. Remember that passage in Ezekiel? You have profaned my name. You have, and I'm going to do something to redeem my name through you, Israel, in the presence of the Gentiles. Well, you have a very clear distinction. Gentiles, God's people, Israel. And God is intending to do something. So again, to me, that speaks to this reality that this promise will be fulfilled through national Israel. Thirdly, furthermore, some promises are clearly material and national 
in nature. Some of the promises we looked at, the regathering of His people, the physical blessings that are associated, are very distinctly uh, made to Abraham's seed, his physical seed. Even in, in, in some passages, we see that um, in Ezekiel 34, for example, verses 28 and 29, that his, his people will be protected from the insults of the surrounding nations. Well, is that true of the church? No, in fact, just the opposite, right? Jesus said, they will hate you. They will speak evil against you. And so I don't see all of the promises of the new covenant unless you tremendously spiritualize them. I don't see these promises as coming all coming through for the church. And remember, covenants are not like smorgasbords, right? You get a little bit of this and a little bit of this, but this we leave behind. That's not the way covenants work. And so, again, I don't have the impression that, that somehow the church is, has come in and replaced Israel. And in fact, in Romans 11, Paul declared that Israel would receive the new covenant in Christ's coming. So, you can disagree with me if you'd like. You'll still be a good person. And I would say many good brothers and sisters in Christ will disagree on this point. So please don't be thrown for a loop if someone uh, presents it differently to you. But my view, my firm conviction is that the promises of the new covenant will still be kept to literal Israel. Do we enjoy many of the blessings that are associated with the new covenant? Absolutely. As God's people, we are richly blessed. And as we even read some of these new covenant promises, we're reminded of that which is promised to us in Christ through repentance, and, for, for repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin. But I still hold out the great joy that God has promised He will do a work for His people. And in Isaiah 59, verse 20, the prophet says, The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgressions in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you, my words which I have put in my mouth. Who is he referring to? Messiah. They shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Now, this may seem academic to you. This, this detailed analysis of where the church fits in relation to the new covenant. But the bigger issue is really this. It's the blessings. It, the, the issue is not the blessings that come to the church. We know about those. Those are promised to us in the gospel. Obviously, we receive new covenant-like blessings. I believe we receive much of the overflow of the covenant and, and will continue to in the future. I have no problem if you believe that you know, somehow we enter into certain aspects of the covenant along with Israel, I, I probably wouldn't look at it quite exactly that way, but, but I can understand that viewpoint. But I simply can't abide the notion that Israel is out and has been replaced by the church. This is an unconditional promise that was given to Abraham and his seed even though God knew in advance that they would rebel from him, that they would profane his name, he still promised to do something great. So what's the point? The point in all of this is that God delights 
to bring the wayward to himself. And for his people Israel, they will be brought back. They will be reunited. They will be blessed. There will be a a wholesale revival, a turning to God on the behalf of his people. And so what does this remind us of? Well, it reminds us really of the same thing that all of the covenants remind us of. It reminds us, first of all, of the character of God. God is faithful. He is gracious. He is good. He is long-suffering. He intends to do great things through wicked people to bring glory to His name. We've sung even this morning during our worship about the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the way in which He does marvelous things through His mercy, and in that we rejoice. Because not only has He expressed that mercy to His people Israel, He expresses it to us again and again and again. And when His name is glorified in the coming days by the reunion of His people, by the doing something great in the midst of Israel, when that happens, we will once again stand before the throne and worship a marvelous God who has brought wayward people to Himself. What else does it remind us of? The indispensability of Messiah in God's plan. God gave a gift to the world in Jesus Christ. Through Christ, He provides salvation that one day His people, Israel, will enter into. They will see their Messiah. There's not a different plan for them. There's not a a backup plan for them. There's no one way of salvation for Gentiles and another way for, for God's people, Israel. No, they will turn to their Messiah. They will bow the knee to Him. And in so doing, they will be reunited with Yahweh, with their God. He will be their God, and they will be His people. And lastly, it reminds us of God's passion for drawing the wayward to Himself and His intent to bless them. We see God's heart revealed in the covenants to honor His name through blessing His people. So as we look at the covenants, what we rejoice in is God. His goodness, His mercy, His long-suffering that is expressed to people throughout the ages and in which we can rejoice as His people today. God delights to bring the wayward to Himself. Father, use these, Your words, in our heart. Continue to speak to us through it. I pray, Lord, that You would remind us of the work that you have done and you will do again in Israel. And may we rejoice that we as weak and feeble people, even as ones who were out, who were not part of your your people, but we now have been made through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bow before the Lord to, to meditate and rejoice on the truths that we have heard this morning before I conclude in prayer. Lord, use your word in our hearts. Remind us of it often as we rejoice in you even this morning. We long for that day when your people Israel will be reunited with you. And Lord, we look forward to being that brother, that one who was adopted into your family, 
rejoicing with those who, although having rebelled from you, have now come back. We look forward to that day when you will rule and reign on this earth and be our God and we your people. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let me make a...